What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael Pina of SB Nation. Now, Michael, we are speaking on Monday morning. Of course, tragic news hit on Sunday. Los Angeles Lakers legend Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gianna, who was 13 years old, were both passengers in a helicopter that crashed uh, near Calabasas, California, which is about 30 miles or so northwest of Los Angeles. Uh, Both Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gianna passed away, as did the other seven passengers uh, of the helicopter. Of course, Kobe was sort of legendarily known for flying the Kobe chopper uh, around L.A. to beat traffic both during and after his career. Um, It's a horrible tragedy. I think that speaks uh, for itself. Michael, uh, I'm curious. I mean, first of all, I'd like to ask for uh, some bandwidth, you know, and some uh, understanding from our listeners. Uh, We're trying to pick up the pieces uh, after this, you know, huge news event, uh, just like everyone else. I don't know about Michael, but I'm running on very short sleep. It's been an emotional, uh, high stress 24 hours. So bear with us here if we're a little bit scatterbrained, if we're all over the map. But Michael, I thought we would start sort of with a remembrance uh, of Kobe Bryant. And we'll dig into how you heard the news and what the reaction was around the league and everything else. But I think just right off the top, what is your number one Kobe Bryant memory from his career? 20 years with the Los Angeles Lakers, number four all-time NBA scorer, five rings, two finals MVPs, two Olympic gold medals. There's so much to pick from. What's your number one memory of Kobe Bryant? Man, Ben, this is it's it's so difficult to pin this down to just one thing. Um, I mean, I grew up a some know this, but I grew up a Celtics fan, and uh, Kobe was especially you know once the Celtics started to be relevant and, and competitive in the late two thousands, Kobe was public enemy number one, and uh, I. I, I did not like him at all. I'll, I'll say that up front. Um, is this a case where it. public enemy number one actually undersells it? I mean, I feel like the animosity in that rivalry specifically made him the most polarizing guy in the sport, the most hated guy in Boston. I mean, how far can we take this? Uh, for sure. I, I, it's it's tough to go beyond that at the time. And from 2008 to 2010, I mean, I... Yeah, I did not like him at all. Uh, but, you know, looking back on it now, I mean, I had so much fear every single time he had the ball. I did not want him to shoot, uh, you know, even in the 6-for-24 game. I did not want Kobe Bryant to shoot the ball. I was petrified of him. I, I exhaled every single time he passed the ball or subbed out of the game. He was a terrifying opponent. And that's bad news, uh, Michael, because he liked to shoot and he he, he, did. he shot early, <laughs> shot off. And I don't think you're exhaling too much during his career, were you? You're kind of holding your breath for like 20 straight years. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. Uh, and I mean, Doc Rivers said it really well yesterday. He was just such a great opponent. And, you know, I can't speak for Kobe or anything like that but I can I would be willing to bet that his 2010 championship over the Celtics meant a lot more to him personally than the 2009 one over the Orlando Magic it was just that that was a great rivalry um it it is forever lodged in my brain for you know euphoric reasons and impossibly painful ones and 
you know, speaking just in the context of basketball, which is obviously not what we're here to discuss entirely, uh, that's what first kind of pops into my head just when I think about Kobe Bryant and, and the different dimensions of who he was as a basketball player. Yeah, if I remember back to his retirement tour, I believe he did say that title was the most meaningful of the five for him because of the the heated nature of the rivalry and uh, right. I guess the revenge factor as well. You know, I have an interesting... Uh, prism on this I think too because growing up in Portland Oregon I mean the Lakers were sort of the the hated rival as well Um, you know it it might not be to that same level as the national rivalry of the Celtics and Lakers but man you know big market small market uh, you know Hollywood versus hometown I mean all that stuff uh, was absolutely uh, at play for Blazers fans growing up I did actually I had another kind of layer to my relationship as a as kind of a basketball fan with Kobe Bryant especially early in his career because I was like personally offended anyone would try to be the next Michael Jordan right like of course when we're all out in the uh, you know the cul-de-sac or on the street or in the gym shooting you know turnarounds with our tongues out wearing 23 in games everybody wanted to be the next Jordan right but I always felt like Kobe was just taking it too far you know I, I was such a devout Michael Jordan fan. It was like he was this imposter. Who is this guy uh, who deigns to be like Michael Jordan? Why is he challenging Michael Jordan in the All-Star game? Doesn't he have, you know, respect for this guy? And uh, I think as his career evolved, he shed that next Michael Jordan label, uh, you know, fairly quickly. Uh, I think the fact that he had the Shaquille O'Neal partnership was one step towards that. Um, I think, uh, you know, just the the longevity factor of how long he played kind of gave him his own lane as well. Um, And then, you know, of course, Kobe was just Kobe. He had his own personality. It really came through with the Black Mamba mentality stuff that, uh, you know, he kind of pinned his entire persona on late in his career. And that's really when I came around to Kobe. You know, I, I first moved to Los Angeles during his last year, and I was thinking yesterday, how it like time in LA is all like, you know, it's like before Kobe and after Kobe, you know, it's like BC mm-hmm. and AD, right? So it's like my first year in LA was Kobe's last season, the retirement tour. And I was completely transfixed. I mean, for years I had been kind of killing the Lakers for like overpaying on his contract. What are they doing? You know, don't they realize that he's, you know, post Achilles? Uh, don't they realize that he's not as efficient as he used to be? He's shooting Uh, his team out of games. He's standing in the way of his teammates developing. But when you get down there and you understand the cult of personality, the size of the Lakers fan base, uh, the fact that he could go 0 for 40 and they would rather watch that than anybody else take a shot, uh, you you realize you're kind of in a different spot. And I was just captivated more than anything by his personality. I think that my number one memory of him well, it might have been the press conferences where he was alternating between like three different languages, Italian, Spanish, and English at the drop of a hat. And it was just like, oh my God, who is this guy? Like how many professional athletes in America are able to uh, to converse fluently with international media members, you know, no problem whatsoever and make jokes and, and like, you know, get positive reactions in three different languages. But I remember the All-Star Weekend in Toronto, his last All-Star game. And remember, he had been kind of given all these tributes and and, and various things uh, during his retirement tour. But at All-Star Weekend, members of the foreign media came up and presented Kobe with gifts 
right? And this is like a huge breach of protocol as a media member. You're not supposed to ask for selfies. You're not supposed to, uh, you know, ask for autographs. Certainly, you're not supposed to bring like Italian soda and like fan art with Kobe <laughs> wearing like a kimono and, you know, swinging samurai swords as like a goodbye present to Kobe. And I was struck thinking back on that moment because the NBA PR people were right there and they did not step in and it was awkward. And we're all kind of looking around, snickering a little bit like, oh, you know, don't these reporters know what they're supposed to be doing? Kobe was so incredibly gracious uh, in that moment. He was just absolutely beaming. And it was sort of like the league was allowing him to have this moment of a global embrace uh, on his go- goodbye tour. Whereas like, hey, you know, these these reporters were almost stand-ins for the millions of fans that he had in China, the millions of fans he had uh, around Europe and Asia and everywhere else who were sort of saying goodbye to him. And I thought it was just a really touching moment that captivate, uh, that kind of captured his impact uh, on a lot of people. I mean, love him or hate him, you know, Kobe Bryant was the kind of guy you loved or hated. He pulled emotions out of you. There was not really uh, any way for you to sit on the fence about him, and he knew it, and he leaned all the way into it. Uh, and that's why he's, you know, perhaps the most beloved LA sports icon ever. And I think that's why at 41 years old, his death is so shocking and so stunning to people. He had that personal connection in a way that very few athletes do. Yeah, all that's really well said. And Ben, I mean, my his last season was also my first season actually covering a team one specific team as a kind of like a beat writer hey uh, <laughs> see, see what i mean michael don't we judge it all in kobe years in la because you were in la there briefly so your your first right. year was kobe's last year is that right yeah and uh so i can only speak to who he was during that one season and it was probably the most bizarre nba season i mean it was a hell of a way to to cover a basketball team it was just you know from d'angelo russell and nick young to just roy hibbert meta world peace lou williams the characters in that locker room well, it was just stop, like stop right there michael was it a basketball team or was this just the kobe bryant show because i remember it as being like kobe bryant and yes he has teammates but not really you know oh no it was all about everything was catered towards kobe that year it was like Come on, like he he didn't practice, and there was still like no resentment from the teammates. Everybody knew what they signed up for that year. It was like, should we develop the young guys? No, it's all about Kobe. Like he's thirty seven years old, his body's breaking down. It's all about Kobe. And you know, watching from afar, I can understand why that was ludicrous. But when you were there, I remember like I think it was it was uh, an early January game against the Sixers, and this was the this was the process Sixers. So this was just I. Can't can't even remember a single player who was on the floor for that team off the top of my head and Staples Center was sold out that night and it was like a Wednesday game and like I don't know how many points Kobe scored but he did play and there were MVP chants and there were Kobe chants and there was not an empty seat in the house and to contrast that with you know we just talked about Zion and his debut and how we were disappointed and Pelicans fans for not showing up like my respect level for Laker fans just went to a completely different area of the galaxy when I attended that game and saw their love for him and what he meant to them. And again, I just want to go back and say, like, I can't, uh, I can't, um, 
look at Kobe from any other perspective than the season that I was up close with him. Um, and whenever you asked him a question in a post-game press conference, I'm so glad you brought up the the, the multilingual, uh, how he just went from one language to another as deftly as he did. But another thing about him in those press conferences that was so memorable to me was every time you asked him a question, uh, not every time, but uh, at least for me, he made you feel like you were, it was just like you and him in the room. And he was just speak. He was just, he would stare straight into your soul and answer the question with like such technical precision. Like it was just, it was honestly a joy. I learned so much that year from him, just hearing him talk about basketball, uh, waiting 45 minutes after games by his locker with just, I mean, you can't even imagine the camera, the cameras that were there, the, you know, everyone's bustling and, and jostling to kind of get a question in. And it was just like a sweaty sauna of a post-game locker room. It's like those, those memories I will never, ever forget. And, uh, you know, that's the thing. I mean, he was almost like this religious icon. I mean, his fans were devoted to him in a way that, you know, very few players kind of connect. And I think the same deal kind of with the media. He was able to just put everybody under his spell. And I think his critics might say, oh, he was a little bit fake. He was Hollywood. He was just manipulating everyone, pulling the puppet strings. But you go try there to stand in his orbit, ask him a question, have him look deep into your soul, understand that this guy knows more about basketball and has thought more uh, on sort of heavy life topics than you probably have. And then he's going to explain it in very eloquent fashion. And then you try not to be overwhelmed by that moment. I was right there with you, Michael. I remember asking him a question about Allen Iverson, a complete throwaway, just softball type question, uh, because Iverson was going into the Hall of Fame. And this was at one of the All-Star weekends. And Kobe went on for like four minutes about AI, personal connections, just telling all of these stories. And if I was supposed to be recording or, or, you know, taking notes or whatever, you can forget about it. <laughs> I was just staring deep into his eyes and was like, this is one of the greatest moments of my writing career. And then I think that you can talk to almost any NBA writer and they who, who spend time around him or ask him questions and they would have that exact same uh, experience. Michael, I want to ask you though, because you, you're talking a lot about that final season. I believe you were at his career finale, and it was so funny because in the days leading up to that, I was actually in that sports talk radio position where it's like I was in Portland and I had to choose. Do I go watch the Warriors win 73 or do I go watch Kobe's final game? And I basically had my pick. Sports Illustrated was saying, you know, do whatever you want to do. And my reverence for Michael Jordan was so high and still is that I was like, look, if someone's actually going to beat 72, I need to be there. I need to write this capping column to salute them and, you know, bring back some of the Jordan memories and just witness it for myself. Like if we're seeing greatness on this level, you know, Michael, I call myself a win connoisseur, right? You know, I appreciate greatness. Uh, I wanted to experience that personally. And wouldn't you know it, you know, this moment that I thought was impossible to ever happen. The 73 wins, never thought someone was going to beat the 96 Bulls. It wound up being the sub headline, the, the second biggest story of the day, because Kobe overshadowed the greatest regular season of team of all time by scoring 60 points on 50 shots, dropping the microphone uh, in just an absolute, like just sort of his entire career boiled down to one night. I believe you made the Kobe choice rather than the Warriors choice. Am I right? 
I I didn't have the option, but I did attend that game. Yes, and uh, I think if honestly speaking, like if I did have the option, I would have I would have chosen Kobe. I mean, I boy, it, what a, was, what a dummy I was. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, dummy to rub it in. Um, but like, you never like the whole season, the emotion, uh, you know, of basically that year. But then also just all the other memories that you have of Kobe leading into that final game. Nothing could have prepared you, anyone, for what he did. Sixty points, fifty shots. He scored ten points in the last minute, forty-five. I, I actually rewatched uh, large segments of that game this morning just because I think it's one of the most special things, and people can criticize it for being inconsequential and you know it was the 17th win of the season for the Lakers so take that for what it is but it was it was incredible like I don't care what anybody says I mean I remember I remember so much about that game but I was I was going back and I reread my column from that night and I had this line in there um it was uh, a quote one hour before the opening tips it, staples center felt like a high school graduation blended with a prize fight inside the most exclusive church on the planet and that's like what it was it was you looked to your right there was snoop dogg you looked to your left there was uh kanye you looked oh there's jay-z there's kendrick lamar there's Shaq. there's Derek fisher there's lamar odom like everyone was there at every single timeout they played commemorative videos uh, of current players like lebron and paul george and kevin durant and kyrie irving saying thank you to kobe it was just it was miraculous and you know by the end down the stretch because the Lakers were down double digits for most of the game and Kobe was just jacking up shots but down the stretch uh, I mean I remember just being overcome with emotion like I I my eyes were like watering uh, I couldn't I, I was it was so difficult to process what was happening uh, it was the loudest arena I've ever been in in my entire life like when the confetti was dropping I was just sitting there completely shook I couldn't move like it, it was such a scene and all this real quick all this for the son of Bob Cousy I mean listen to oh. you growing up <laughs> Celtics fan and he's tearing up uh, at Staples Center watching Kobe do his thing. Look, Michael, I'll say this. By rule, if you quote yourself on this podcast, you're opening yourself up to uh, a lot of potential jokes and wisecracks for me. But that line you just put out there was beautiful. I mean, that summarized it. And the reason why I know it was beautiful is because I got goosebumps and I got jealous and I started hating myself for not going to that game. <laughs> so very well done. Thank you, man. Um but I just want to say, like, the game was amazing, of course, but, like, it was the pregame and it was the postgame that was so special. Like, after it ends, he grabs the microphone, he thanks uh, his teammates, he thanks Laker fans, uh, he thanks Vanessa, his wife, and uh, he does the infamous, uh, the famous uh, Mamba out, kisses his fingertips and drops the mic. And then the postgame press conference, you know, normally at Staples Center, there's a specific room for... Uh, post-game and pre-game press conferences. And for this one, they opened up this other segment of the arena that is normally reserved for, uh, you know, like an NBA Finals game to accommodate all the media. And it's like this giant cavernous room, and it was packed with media members. And Kobe's presser was like about, I want to say like a half hour long. 
and it felt like it would never end. And when it finally did, uh, you know, I was looking around and several media members were standing and clapping, which is like the cardinal sin of sports journalism. And in that moment, I thought they were foolish. And looking back, it's like this, like I'm almost jealous that I didn't do the same thing. Like it's a... it was just such a powerful, powerful moment. Yeah, and on top of that, people were angling to get photos with him afterwards, right? You know, there were, I've seen some photos of longtime journalists going up to hug him and basically salute him and say thank you for everything. Again, very unusual, but also in that moment, uh, understandable. You know, you mentioned how the Lakers only won 17 games that year. I think for us as riders, though, I mean, they went undefeated. Kobe, after those games, was just on fire all season long, you know, and the the game was not on the court. The game was in those press conferences where he is just dropping knowledge and wisdom and basically like test driving some of his theories that was going to wind up becoming his post-career life, right? You know, the animation stories and the inspirational books and the dear basketball note. It was like, hey, he knew that maybe he was on his last legs on the court, but from a creativity standpoint, he was just getting started. So it was like, I'm going to use these like 15 to 20 minute long press conferences after I shoot four for 19 to just, you know, see what kind of a storyteller I really can be. And, you know, like I said earlier, we were all eating it up. Now, Michael, I said earlier, maybe that all-star weekend scene was my favorite Kobe memory, but the more I was thinking about it, I do think that there's a strong contender. Maybe that was my favorite memory for his career, but last month, Kobe Bryant brought Gianna to the Lakers versus Mavericks game in late December at Staples Center. They sat courtside, and anytime Kobe's in the building, you know, since his retirement, he gets the biggest ovations there there is, right? I mean, he's, he is way more beloved than LeBron James. The crowd, you know, standing ovation anytime he's shown on the Jumbotron. I mean, it's just sort of this kind of rite of passage with Kobe. He was there with his daughter, and I was very curious to, to just get a sense for her because she's almost become this mythic like mini Mamba, you know, the Mamba Sita, uh, where, you know, LeBron's talking about how she could grow up to be this WNBA star and uh, Kobe's invested so much time in, in coaching her and, um, you know, setting up these tournaments and, and everything else. And it was a similar personal exploration for me, kind of like when I did this story about Bronny James, because you know, you get these second and I think in her case, third generation basketball stars, and they have everything at their disposal, right? I mean, all the privilege, all the money, all the wealth, all the power, all the connections that could potentially alter your personality when you're a young kid are available to you. So what does that look like in a 13-year-old young woman? And the sheer joy that she had, the smile on her face, the fact that she was just almost overwhelmed to meet Luka Doncic and to pose for a photo with him. And of course, Kobe stepped back and was the proud dad and wanted to take the photo, uh, you know, with the two of them standing side by side. It was remarkable from Kobe as a father, but it was also just very telling to me of Gianna as uh, a young aspiring basketball player. You could tell there was nowhere on the globe she would rather be than meeting Luka Doncic in that moment, right? And, you know, I kept thinking, you know, Luka's only like six years older than her, right? Um, I mean, it's it's crazy to even think about that. But, uh, you know, 
it was almost like she was looking towards him or looking towards some of these NBA players, maybe like Kobe looked towards Michael Jordan when he was her age, you know, and you could just see the generational things playing out. And she was so at ease uh, and had such a wide, captivating smile. She was her father's daughter. I mean, there's no question about it. And, you know, you watch some of the highlights of her playing, you can see some of his tendencies. I know people were doing the side-by-side photos of, of each of them biting their jerseys. But it did remind me a lot of, of uh, Bronny. You know, it's like, I don't understand how these kids are so normal and so good, uh, given the circumstances that they were brought up in. There's every opportunity for, the, for their personalities to kind of go, uh, you know, one direction or the other. And yet, uh, to me, uh, in that moment, she just struck me as uh, exactly what I had hoped for, you know, somebody who just lived, breathed basketball. And, you know, Michael, as we're starting to talk about the right ways to honor Kobe, it's a complicated question um, because it's so shocking. It's so stunning. There aren't a lot of precedents here. Uh and certainly from the Lakers organization, I mean, this is going to be something that hangs over the rest of their season. I mean, this has been an absolute joy ride for the Lakers all year. There's no doubt they're going to devote you know this title push to him. But you could see it with LeBron James's tears coming off the plane yesterday. This is going to hit them very, very, very hard at all levels of the organization. On top of that, he was supposed to go into the Hall of Fame this summer. Um the Hall of Fame induction is not going to be the same without him, right? Even All-Star Weekend coming up, to me, to a certain degree, there's going to be uh, kind of a tragic feeling hanging over what is usually a very festive event. It's just not going to be the same. And I guess I'm already sort of emotionally bracing for that, but I'm also trying to spin it forward in a way. And here's my idea, Michael. Tell me what you think. Outside of Staples Center, as you know, and a lot of our listeners know, there's a lot of statues. You got Shaquille O'Neal dunking. You've got Kareem Abdul-Jabbar with the skyhook. You've got Magic leading the fast break. You've got Jerry West in the logo, you know, driving motion. Kobe obviously is going to get a statue. But I think that the best way to do this, if I was the Lakers, I would put both Kobe and Gianna in the statue. I would make it like the Bean and Gigi statue. And maybe they're sitting courtside and they're smiling watching the game and maybe there's some empty chairs next to them so fans can go sit down next to them and maybe feel part of it. But I think that the defining characteristic of Kobe Bryant as a person and as a player was his devotion to the game. And you could see that in all sorts of different things, the Achilles response, uh, the final night of his career, uh, the five titles, you know, even in some of the negative things like you know his split with Shaquille O'Neal. I mean, he was just absolutely devoted, single-minded to his view of basketball, and he was unrelenting. But I think his devotion to the sport came through most purely in his relationship with his daughter. And I think that's the way, that's the best way that I can think of to honor his memory. Yeah, that that's beautiful. I couldn't agree anymore. Um, and it's really, I mean, it just, it shows... Uh, a lot of his his growth over the years and uh, you know this is someone who alienated teammates um, was a bit of a loner for the early parts of his career didn't have a lot of friends and uh, one of his great legacies is is spreading the love of the game to his daughter and to countless others and to teach and to encourage and 
So I think that would be really beautiful. Um, and I second everything else that you said about just, you know, how the layers of this tragedy and how it'll hang overhead for, I mean, the rest of this season, sure. But I, I mean, beyond that, I, I think I think I just have no comparison to how tragic this is. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. Michael, let's uh, dig in a little bit to just our days yesterday. I'm, I'm still here in New Orleans. I was preparing to watch uh, my Zion Williamson go against your Boston Celtics in you know an open floor head-to-head duel. Um when I heard the news and I had just gotten back from a beautiful nature walk in the swamp, you know, I tried to take a boat tour yesterday morning, but it got rained out. So I'm just kind of, you know, putzing around my hotel room uh, when I start to see the, you know, the initial report and working to confirm it and, you know, going through all those, you know, journalistic layers, putting together a story, getting down to the arena, trying to find just the initial reactions from people. I mean, the arena, especially among the team staffers and the media members was basically a wake or a funeral. I mean, that'd be the only thing that I could compare it to. I saw people crying for sure, openly. Uh, You know, players were having a hard time, you know, kind of uh, forming complete sentences or, uh, you know, fighting through tears as they talked. Same thing with, uh, you know, Alvin Gentry was doing his absolute best to remain composed. And uh, certainly he made a comment that, you know, there's basketball and then there's real life and this is real life. Uh, I thought Brad Stevens's tributes to Kobe were great. He mentioned how, you know, his high school best friend had been recruited by Kobe's dad. So he got a chance to see Kobe Bryant play in an open gym at 16. And his best friend came back and told Brad, this is the best 16-year-old player I've ever seen in my entire life. And that's pretty much how it worked out. He also said that, you know, Celtics players and Celtics staffers were kind of surreptitiously trying to get Kobe Bryant's autograph, uh, you know, during his retirement tour, uh, you know, the the last time through Boston, which I thought, you know, coming from Boston, you know, that's like the ultimate respect, right? Um, So you had everyone struggling to sort of put this moment into words to go through the motions of playing a game. Um, and that was something that we saw around the league, whether it was Trey Young wearing Kobe Bryant's jersey number and scoring 45 points, Damian Lillard going off for the Portland Trailblazers. I mean, both those guys have always pointed to Kobe as kind of major influences or, uh, you know, guys that they looked up to uh, throughout their career. Um, but I was just in a, a state of fog. And to be honest, I'm not sure the fog has lifted. I mean, it's been a very you know, difficult 24 hour period. I'm curious, Michael, what was your day like yesterday? Um, and how you doing? How you holding up? 
Yeah. Um, so yesterday there was a uh, Knicks-Nets game in New York where I live, and I normally don't attend those just because, uh, you know, I, I mostly cover whoever is in town. So I get to see, for re- reporting reasons, I get to see the uh, the Nets and the Knicks basically anytime I want. So I usually sit those one out and just kind of watch the NBA from my couch. And there was a lot of action last night. So that was my plan. And then when I got the news, it was a, I, got, I got a text from a friend of mine who's like, did you hear about Kobe? And the first thing I thought of was that Kobe was going to come back to play for the Lakers. That's like, that's like before I went on Twitter, that's like, because this person texting me about Kobe, not a normal thing. So I knew it was a big deal. And that's what I anticipated when I opened up Twitter. And then I saw the TMZ report. And like, I was, I was gutted in a way that I was not anticipating at all. And I did not go to the game because I just could not be around other people. And so, like you, I'm still processing this. It's still it's still stunning. I was at the gym this morning and watching highlights from last night's action. And, you know, I'm on the treadmill and I see the Trey Young half-court shot that goes in. And it's like I'm almost getting choked up on the treadmill. It's like it's a... Uh, it's just so much to try to process. And, you know, I I think that some players yesterday did not want to play. And, you know, one, Marcus Morris was like, why we should not have played the game. Some other people made statements about how all the games should be canceled. And I, 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 I agree with that. I think, um, I see the, the business aspect of it and you can't just tell fans, who have already showed up to an arena, who've paid for tickets, that the game is canceled. And I understand that. And, you know, what we also were blessed with was the commemorations, the, as you said, the Trey Young wearing number eight. Uh, you had the 24-second shot clock violations and the eight-second eight uh, half-court, backcourt uh, violations. Those were brilliant, um, by the way. I mean, just strokes of genius by whoever came up with those. I mean, as a basketball guy... I did not even think of that. I didn't even conceive of it. And I mean, to me, that was, I mean, that one hit hard when I, when I heard and saw that they were doing that, that, that one blew my mind. Yeah, that was just beautiful. Um, so if you don't play the games, you don't get something like that. Um, no, I, and I, I, think- I, I hear what you're saying though. I mean, it was a very, very difficult position for the league to be in, especially from the timing standpoint, because it's not like they had five hours before the tip-off, right? There were these rolling tip-offs on a Sunday where some early games, and so do you cancel one? Do you cancel all? Is it a case-by-case? Do you let the players decide? What do you do? Um, Ultimately, uh, I think your approach of staying away, and I believe Kyrie Irving did the same thing too, right? Didn't he leave the arena? Yes. I mean, to me, and I made this point about Kyrie at the beginning of the season, I mean, I think that that is an incredibly mature response if you're dealing with grief if you need time and space rather than going through the motions rather than you know putting yourself on television where you know you're feeling you know sick to your stomach or nauseous or just like you don't feel like you should be there uh, i think that you know i kind of tip my hat to Kyrie, and he's in a unique situation because he's a superstar so he can sort of do what he he wants to do but i hope he's not getting any criticism for that and i think that he actually sent 
you know, a pretty good message with that one. You know, if you guys are struggling with tough news like this, whether it's about Kobe Bryant or someone in your family and you need time and space to get through it, take it, you know, and hopefully your employer and, and your company will support you on that. Uh, grief is just one of those things that gets to you in different ways. You know, it can come in waves, you know, it can, it can come and just kind of stab you real quick. Uh, you can be unpredictable. It can change your personality, change your mood. And it's so important to, uh, you know, self-reflect, I guess, at that time. And for Kyrie, he went through that with his grandfather last year. He was very open about the impacts. And I think, um, you know, he set a, a really good example there. From the league's perspective, I don't personally have a problem with the fact that they played those games. Um, but I will be curious to just read the reporting here as it comes out. You know, how was the decision made? Um, were people given the options or anything like that? Because, uh, you know, some of the teams that took the court just didn't want to be there, you know, and they said that and they look that way. And, you know, they'll never remember what happened on those courts because they were in a fog, sort of like the rest of us. Yeah, 100%. I mean, regardless of, there's like almost nothing, there is nothing that could have happened on the basketball court yesterday that would ever be remembered beyond commemorating the death of Kobe and the tragic loss of life of eight others. Michael, when we're talking about, you know, the greatest players of all time conversation, uh, to me, Kobe's in that top 10 range, right? In that 10 to 15 range. I mean, I look at certain players, you know, certainly Jordan, certainly uh, Bill Russell. For me, Magic Johnson, uh, you know, w- would be above Kobe. I think Tim Duncan would be above Kobe for sure. I think Shaquille O'Neal uh, might even be above Kobe. Uh, and you can go on, you know, with other players, maybe Akeem Olajuwon, uh, some people would argue, Will Chamberlain, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Uh, I guess I'm curious, when you're looking back with what we've described as kind of this major transition, kind of going from hating the guy to sort of respecting the guy to being moved by the guy to uh, grieving his death. I mean, what is his legacy, do you think, when we're talking about best players ever or when we're talking about kind of icons within basketball? Yeah, I mean, that's a tough one. I just, I remember just for so long uh, arguing about, arguing with people who worshipped Kobe Bryant, who thought he was uh, either the best player in the world at any given time or deserving of the MVP or better than LeBron or whatever it may be. And I don't know, like, it's just like those things seem so uh, fruitless right now. And, you know, if I to answer your question, like, yeah, I, I agree with you with basically everything you just said. I think he's one of the 15 best players who ever lived, and I think he'll be remembered for a lot more good and bad uh, that he did on and off the floor. And uh, it's just a really complicated legacy that he leaves behind in so many different ways. There's a lot of good. There's a lot of bad. And uh, and on the court, he was peerless in a lot of different ways that you can't really... I, like, I honestly think that if you are a player who is trying to... who is either in the NBA or trying to get to the NBA, um, you kind of view Kobe in a different way than everybody else who's just kind of on the sidelines watching the game. 
And so his yeah, there's no question. Look, I mean, he might be a top 15 guy to us outsiders, but I think among his peers, right, he is top five, and he he might not top even three. He might not <laughs> yeah. even he might not be four or five, right? I mean, I think he's right up there. I mean, he was the alpha's alpha, the player's player. I mean, I think so many professional athletes view themselves in sort of the same vein as a Kobe Bryant, right? They want to be seen as clutch. They want to be seen as reliable. They want to be seen as sort of doing whatever it takes to win. Um, And I think even high-level all-star athletes would look at Kobe and be like, this guy is different. He is willing to go farther and push his body further than I am. Like He's just a maniac. He's got a maniacal work ethic that even stands out uh, compared to his contemporaries. And so I do think he's going to be remembered a little bit differently. you know, within uh, player circles, maybe then sort of outside circles, you're right to touch on the highs and lows of his career. I mean, we can't tape this podcast without mentioning um, the Colorado incident, uh, the sexual assault allegations, and, and the suit, civil suit settlement that came out of that. Um, and when you look back on that uh, chapter of his career, I do think a lot of writers, especially people who have spent time with him, felt like that was almost like a turning point or maybe the turning point of his career where it's like he realized he was no longer going to be like Mike, this just perfectly pristine hero figure. And now he was almost going to need to embrace almost the villain side of things uh, or the more polarizing side of things and just lean in harder to like the black mamba mentality of, you know, I'm, I'm this ruthless guy who's just going to stop at nothing to uh, to win titles and, you know, score points and, and everything else. I mean, is is that how you view uh, that chapter, or do you look at it differently? I, I suppose so. Um, it's obviously a very dark time, and there's a victim involved, and it's really difficult to talk about, and it's it's really difficult to have this entire conversation uh, in the wake of such a tragic event glorifying someone who who was uh, alleged to, to do something like that. So um, I do think that post-Colorado, uh, Kobe was definitely uh, leaning into the, um, you know, not not really caring at all what anyone thought about him, I think was the, my big takeaway from just those years afterwards when he was just so antagonizing and you know phil jackson writes that about this in, in, in several books um uh, yeah. and i mean he successfully trolled even the zen master right who arguably is <laughs> one of the greatest trolls in nba history and it was like he out he outflanked the zen master in the troll game didn't he yeah exactly so i mean phil jackson basically said he was uncoachable uh during that season and didn't have a lot of good things to say about him. So uh, it's 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 just really difficult to process in the entirety of who he was and his entire life and the steps that he made as a father afterwards. And I don't, like, it's just really difficult to judge, you know? It's just really difficult. Yeah, part of it is because we don't know the full story, right? Uh, part of it is we don't know all the details, and uh, it is a part of his legacy that is not going away. And I think it's a part of his uh, professional career that cost him an awful lot of fans, endorsement deals, 
uh, and everything else. And I think for some Kobe Bryant fans who would hope that that would just not get mentioned here, um, you know, upon the sudden and tragic and just kind of horrifying way that he passed, uh, you know, I think that's that's not quite right. I do think it needs to be discussed and it needs to be included uh, in this conversation. Michael, my last thought on all of this, as I was struggling to find sort of historical comparisons, you know, because I think people maybe were going to like Princess Di or Michael Jackson or, or comparison points like that for Kobe. When I was thinking about kind of sports, uh, the sports context, the name that came to mind for me was Roberto Clemente. And I just remember growing up as a kid, and I used to read a bunch of baseball books when I was a little kid. And he was kind of painted like the saint-like figure, right? I mean, here he is uh, doing all uh, this Puerto Rican, you know, sensation baseball player, doing all this good work, donating, you know, time and money uh, to Central America and, and um, you know, other uh, you know, third world countries of sort of trying to improve those communities. And he dies, I believe, at 38 years old. I always remembered he had exactly 3,000 hits. Um, I think he was something like a 15-time All-Star maybe, and, and Kobe obviously was an 18-time All-Star. They're similar ages when they pass. Clemente dies in a plane crash. Kobe dies in a helicopter crash. To me, I think that's the best, uh, you know, comparison point that we really have. I mean, uh, Major League Baseball wound up renaming its citizenship award, I think, after him. They inducted him into the Hall of Fame uh, essentially immediately. And his spirit and kind of memory lived on for years and years and years and to this day, really. I mean, I think most people uh, have a certain image. If they've heard of Roberto Clemente, they know what, uh, you know, th th that name means something to them. And I do think, as we've just discussed, you know, Kobe's story is more complicated than that. You know, I think that usually time will sort of, uh, you know, be favorable to famous people and it will remember their best moments and maybe tend to forget or uh, downplay uh, their worst moments. So I'm not going to say that, you know, Kobe is going to be remembered by everyone as a saint on that same level uh, with Clemente. But I do think that that is the natural comparison point here. And, you know, growing up, just trying to, you know, when I was a little kid, just trying to wrap my mind around the idea that, you know, such a baseball talent who could have been part of the sport for another 30 or 40 years in some capacity, whether it's managing or as an executive or a scout or, you know, maybe the, the head of a baseball federation for his country or whatever else. Uh, the idea that that was cut short so early just really blew my mind. And I feel the same way about Kobe. I mean, this was supposed to be a guy who shows up and sits courtside, sort of like a Bill Russell or a Kareem uh, or a Michael Jordan for decades to come. Uh, and, you know, if nothing else, we knew that he was going to have his fingerprints and, and just be around basketball because he was such a mythic and iconic figure. And that's just not going to happen. And to me, that's the hardest, the hardest part of this to process. Yeah, the most painful element of death is what could have been in a lot of instances and Roberto Clemente is a really good parallel uh, I was you know when I was in the second grade my first little league team was the Pittsburgh Pirates and I knew very little about baseball at the time and uh, so I did a little bit of research and tried to find who the best Pittsburgh Pirate was who ever lived and it was Roberto Clemente and so for a school project uh, later that year we had to dress up as 
I don't know, a historical figure, basically, and I just wore my baseball uniform. And wait, was wait a minute, Roberto wait a Clemente. minute. So your school, you've got a bunch of Thomas Jeffersons and George Washingtons, and then Roberto Clemente Pina showed up? Basically. That is absolutely beautiful. Michael, you live such a fascinating life, whether it was Roberto Clemente or Dennis Rodman. I guess you hit your teen years and you went to the Rodman side of things, huh? Exactly, yeah. It's uh, two and the same, really. Um <laughs> Yeah. Well, so look, that's a beautiful note. I think we, I think we should end it on that. I mean, everyone can just you know take away this beautiful picture of Michael in his Pittsburgh Pirates uniform, you know, celebrating the life of Roberto Clemente. And let's be honest, you know, there's going to be tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of young kids out there putting on the number eight, putting on the number twenty-four. And even Zion Williamson last night said that he had both jerseys when he was a kid. Um, you know, in some ways, Kobe's legacy is just getting started. Um, And that's wild to think about because we've known him in the public eye since he was a teenager taking Brandy to prom and making the cover of Sports Illustrated, high school All-American and everything else. Michael, thanks so much for, you know, sharing the memories, walking us through your day yesterday. um, And, you know, some of those great just personal experiences that you described. Emailers, I know Kobe Bryant connected with you one way or the other. Let us know. Open floor mail at gmail.com open floor mail at gmail.com we'll pick up regularly scheduled programming uh, later this week i will be back in los angeles the lakers will play the clippers on tuesday uh, certainly that will provide plenty to discuss uh, when we get back and and michael i look forward to talking to you uh, about all that uh, later this week for now you guys can go to apple Podcasts and search for open floor that's two words when you find our page scroll down it will say rate and review tap five stars it's just that easy to help us spread the word michael's on instagram and twitter at michael v as in victor pina i'm on instagram at ben.goliver i'm on twitter at ben goliver we've been putting up um all sorts of different tributes to kobe bryant um some videos from over the years uh that i shot in various locker room situations uh, you know, a story kind of recounting everything. A column about his legacy is going up here shortly. So there's plenty of stuff. If you want more Kobe, just check uh, our social media pages. I'm sure you'll be able to find it. All right, Michael. Uh, until later this week, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben. <laughs> <laughs>